This is April Mazza. And this is Christy Showman Fair. And this podcast is overdue. We're friends and coworkers, librarians, librarians. And each episode, we talk about books we're reading, things we're loving, and library advice we're giving. Good morning, April. Good morning, Christy. It's so How good to you? see you today. It's good to see you too. Or hear you today. Everybody's hearing <laughs> us, not seeing us. Although, did you know that there are some podcasts out there that then post the video? Oh, I didn't. On YouTube? Yeah. Oh. I found that out from our, um, one of the podcast groups that I joined. Oh, that could be interesting. Yeah. Especially since we're recording in pajamas and camp clothing. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, shh. Someone needed to know that. Today is a it's our day. secret. <laughs> so uh, what have you been reading this week? Oh, I'm really excited to talk about this book. And I know you're excited about it too, because I, I know you have it at home, <laughs> oh, yay. which which as we discussed before, can be a problem with home books. But It um, can, yeah. <laughs> my uh, book is Last Night at the Telegraph Club and it's by Melinda Lowe. And she is an MLS favorite, we have to admit. Oh my gosh, um, she's amazing. She spoke at Teen Summit a few years ago and she just was wonderful to work with and her writing is amazing. Most of what I've read of hers is fantasy. So this book's a little different uh, because it is historical fiction and it takes place in San Francisco, specifically in Chinatown in the 1950s. And the main character is Lily. She's a Chinese American teen. I think her last year of high school or her junior mm-hmm. year, but she's, you know, it's at that age where she's thinking about her future a lot and like what she would like to study when she goes to college and what she'd like her life to be like as an adult and it's a bit of a scary time actually where she is because of McCarthyism and this kind of anti-communism a lot of paranoia um, a lot of fear in in her community fear of that fear (laughs) you know sort of being on the other side of that and you know, her whole family is really nervous that their father might be deported or, you know, worse things could happen. So to add to that stress, Lily's also starting to realize that she's attracted to women. And I think because of the Arab and also like the environment she's grown up in, she doesn't even really have a way to articulate that. Like Mm -hmm. she, she doesn't really even know the words, you know, what, what, you know, what that means, lesbian or gay, you know, she she doesn't really know. And um, one scene, she's at like the pharmacy and they have a book rack of, you know, sort of like the, probably at the time, like 10 cent paperbacks or whatever. And so she's thinking about this book because she's talking about it with a friend. And she says that book, it was about two women and they fell in love with each other. And then Lily asked the question that had taken root in her that was even now unfurling its leaves and demanding to be shown the sun. Have you ever heard of such a thing? So she, you know, like I said, she doesn't even really know that this existed, but she knew that was happening sort of inside her. And the Telegraph Club is a club and it is based on uh, research that Melinda Lowe did of different lesbian bars in that community that were sort of all in one area at the time and the telegraph club is where a woman male impersonator (laughs) named tommy andrews or that's their stage name Mm -hmm. performs and lily sees a clipping about this and she's really intrigued again can't doesn't quite understand why this is appealing to her but also feels like very illicit and a little you know dangerous and so eventually she does go to the telegraph club with her friend and eventually she sort of starts to enter this lesbian community that before to her was hidden and is probably hidden from a lot of people in her community yeah Yeah. and she you know is with this friend who's also her love interest um kathy who's caucasian so that is again Mm -hmm. another layer um going on here and it's a slow burn romance there's a lot of tension so if you like that kind of thing um you're gonna find that here but I felt like that also really again fit the time so it's like it is that time that era where like romance was what is it very innocent innocent. yeah (laughs) Yeah. yeah. and um you couldn't like go too far but also again with the you know she's 
scared of what might happen with her family if they were to find out that she you know at that time considered like abnormal you know Mm -hmm. so it's it's you know very it's like a beautiful time for her and very stressful and what I really loved about this book and I think this is just Melinda Lowe's writing how she writes is how immersive it feels like yes feel like you've traveled back in time you know when they talk about food you feel like you can smell it and mm-hmm. see it and of course I love all the scenes with food like because they're really specific about different Chinese cuisine that sounds really interesting and um but yeah you just like feel like you can see and hear all all of these things through um, well, the character's eyes as you've been talking about the book so I, I'm reading it too and love it but I, I had like this mental image of her bedroom and the, mm-hmm. the magazine yep. ad that she pulls out and that she's folded up and it's in her pocket. Like I can mm-hmm. like really feel like I was right there. Like right. the writing is exceptional. Right. And, you know, if you've read her other books, like, you know, like the, those fantasy worlds, like she's so amazing at world building. Yes, and I, yeah. I often think of that phrase in terms of fantasy writing, right. Or other fantasy media and I didn't really think about how that would apply to historical fiction but it's really clear too that she did I've read um, some reviews and articles where Melinda Lowe did just a, an immense amount of research for this and mm-hmm. it shows it shows because you do feel like like I said that you've traveled back in time and the characters are so nuanced you know Lily also has a best friend who's she's kind of growing away from and you know they're both feeling that and and the you know sort of the sadness that comes Mm -hmm. with that and frustrations but yeah and so like the relationship between Lily and Kathy is sort of the center of the book but it's not it's just more than that it's really about so many things in our society that were happening then but happening now too so homophobia xenophobia racism um immigration yeah, just discovering your queerness and, you know, how, again, how you want to live your life in the future when you're just becoming an adult. So yeah, it was like really rewarding as a reader to like, yeah, this is, this is a romance-ish, but Mm -hmm. it's really just a full, a whole book. It's a full-fledged everything. (laughs) So uh, yeah, definitely highly recommend that. Any of Melinda Lowe's writing, you just really will feel like, you know, if you think of books as an escape, you know, any of her books, I think will yes. give you that. I've read everything she's written. And I, I mean, and I'm just going to blink on the title right now, but uh, her science fiction work is actually mm. among my favorite science fiction books. Adaptation. Mm-hmm. Adaptation. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I haven't read that. Oh my gosh. Fantastic. But that's the thing. Like she can write any genre and do a, an amazing job. And it is, I, I think about it what you said about world building that even if the world building is based on fact it's still world building and there's so much Mm -hmm. like talent that goes into that and and detail and texture so that you really feel like you're in that space so thank you for sharing thanks well what about you well I just I I love the serendipity of this work that we do on this podcast as people know, we don't talk about the books ahead of time. We don't really know what we we're choosing. We don't really talk about anything ahead no, of time. No, <laughs> no, but we often find connections and themes between what we're reading. And I think that this one is is fantastic. I don't know if you chose it particularly, but it's Pride right now. Yes. Um, it's June. No, I didn't. I, it's just you so didn't? happened that's, nope. Well, and but I didn't either. Later. Yeah, we but the book just... that I picked <laughs> also fits in with Pride, but it's a grown-up book. Oh, I know, right? Fancy you. Oh, look at me. I'm growing up. So I picked The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley. Oh, yeah. uh, he is a, a author of uh, a book that I read a couple of years ago and really loved called Lily and the Octopus about a dog who has a tumor. It's it's very heartbreaking, but also just amazingly well done. And And I happened to get to see him speak at an event a while back. Um, And so this kind of popped up somewhere. I think maybe I saw a post from a bookstore that had it in the post. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to check that out. I like his writing. 
and I feel a connection to him, even though I don't really have a connection because he grew up in the same town where my husband grew up. So there are references to places that I knew. And so this one is about Patrick, who is kind of retired um, sitcom star. Basically, he was on a show that was the equivalent of Friends, you know, how Friends is in our space, that we all know who those actors are. Well, after the show ended, he just hid and he moved from uh, Hollywood to Palm Springs and has basically lived a hermit life since then. And then the story starts where his brother's wife has passed away, but his brother's wife also happened to be his best friend from college. Mm. Um, You know, the, the, the very like, closest person in your life that that's who Sarah was to Patrick Sarah and and Patrick's brother had two kids and at the funeral the brother who I'm blanking on his name I think it's Greg um and I don't want to get it wrong is telling everybody that he needs to go into rehab so not only has have these kids lost their mom their dad now needs to go into rehab for a few months and he asks Patrick to watch the kids and move them from Connecticut to Palm Springs so that's the very like setting of the story is that mm-hmm. this is the summer that Patrick, a gay semi-retired actor is who's been living by himself for the last four years is now in charge of two kids who are like nine and six. Ooh. And um, and he's their gunkle, their gay uncle. Yeah. <laughs> um, they also call him Gup, um, gay uncle Patrick. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I think those nicknames came from Sarah, the mother who had passed mm. away. It is just a fantastic story overall and and uh Stephen Rowley does an amazing job building characters characters who feel real and accessible but also that we can connect with and in all the grief you know in in the kids grief but also Patrick's grief and losing his best friend in a in a way that you can't really you know, you don't get the same kind of support when it's your best friend who mm-hmm. has died. And I say that knowing exactly what that feels like. So his grief, but also then examining grief because he had lost a partner previous years. And so as Patrick kind of navigates being a parent, you know, for the first time <laughs> um, and, and having to keep these small humans alive, but also helping them navigate their own grief and him kind of addressing a grief that he's put on a shelf for a long time is just a really amazing story, but it's still full of tons of tons of humor. You know, it is, it's, I think when I think about it, I think of it's like, it's a funny story. And the, the, right. you know, I think design kind of goes into that too. The book cover mm-hmm. is these bright summer colors um, and has Patrick, he's wearing right. a caftan, which is becomes and, kind of an o- ongoing joke <laughs> yeah. in the story. Uh, and then two kids. And it looks very young. Like it looks like it could be a YA. It does. Cover. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bright. It's summery. It's like, it screams beach read, but it's so more, much more than that. It is really this examination of what is family? How do you deal with grief? Does grief go away? And, and what do you do no. about it <laughs> when it doesn't? Because mm. it doesn't. I just, I loved it. I read it so quickly and I just wanted to give it a hug. And I also loved all the Palm Springs references. I grew up in the desert, not that desert, but you know, the the one nearby. I mean, actually technically it's all the same desert, but I grew up a little bit away from about an hour from Palm Springs. And, and it just, I could feel the heat. I could, I knew a lot of the places um, that were mentioned in the story and it just felt like home. And I loved it. I like that. Yeah, I've seen someone else post about that book. So now I'm going to have yeah. to add it to my oh, list. And I, I actually did post about post this, I think maybe on our stories, but um, on Instagram. But um, I always read acknowledgments. Always. Oh, yeah, I the like whole to thing. read them too. The end of the acknowledgments for this one just almost made me cry happy tears. So it says, finally, to Byron Lane, a thousand times yes. In parenthetical note, in the acknowledgments for his novel, A Star is Bored, Byron proposed. In case anyone had read his book, you should. And then was waiting for my next book to see what my answer is. Now you know. At the very least, I wanted my acceptance documented in the Library of Congress alongside the contents of Abe Lincoln's pockets and a lock of Walt Whitman's hair. Wow. Isn't that sweet? That's amazing. Yes. Do you think 
he really waited that long? No, no, yes. no, 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 no. I, I don't think so at all. I think that they were already married by the, this case. time this okay. one came out. But I, but you know, it's just that that this this kind of can. I, I just yeah. yeah, it just made me so happy. That's awesome, right? And probably like point zero zero one right of readers will catch that. But you are one of them. I am. I always read them. All right, Christy, thanks for sharing your book. Are you ready for our question for Ask Us Anything? I think I am. <laughs> this is one that I've gotten before, but not necessarily because of this podcast, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about what a day in the life is like for a consultant <laughs> um, such, a, such as us. So right, for that's super specific title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For our listeners who might not be familiar with who we are in person, we work for a nonprofit that supports libraries all over the state of Massachusetts. And just about every state has an agency like this. It might be a government agency, so your state library. Um, we do have a state library agency, the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners, and we do work closely with them. But I think our jobs are a little bit different. Do you wanna start? Sure. Yeah. So I always like to describe ourselves as librarians, librarians. So if you think about what a librarian does for their community, whether their school or university or, or town city, uh, we do that for librarians. So, you know, we answer questions, we help them find information, we help them solve problems, and then we we provide content information and I, I, I love it. I love, you know, everything that we do and the, and the vast kind of variety, because I'm, I'm the type of person who likes something to have new challenges and to do different things all the time. And so as we were talking, we did know what question we were going to do. And so April said, let's talk about like pre-COVID and post-COVID mm. um, and what our days look like. And I, in my notes, I wrote pre-COVID in my car. COVID in my bedroom. <laughs> so, you know, before we, you know, the world shut down, I drove around Massachusetts a lot. Sometimes I did that because I was going to teach a, or facilitate a workshop. And, you know, we would do that in libraries. So people had a chance to see different spaces. Um, but also um, because we, we would go to where the library staff were who wanted to mm -hmm. participate. So, you know, we would do a workshop and then repeat it like six times around the state. And so I would drive all over the state or often actually April and I would drive around the state <laughs> and, um, and be in different regions. And so, you know, I live North of Boston and it was not unlikely for me to drive to Cape Cod, which for anybody outside of Massachusetts, if you look on it in a map, you're like, that's not very far, especially if you're from somewhere like California or Texas or Australia, <laughs> uh, you know, like it, Massachusetts is small, but it could take three hours one way mm -hmm. to drive somewhere. And sometimes we would drive and, and that's stay without overnight. Traffic. Yeah, exactly. That's without traffic. I, yeah. I think the longest is um, when I would go to Martha's Vineyard. Mm, of course, and yeah. because that could take about six hours to get there, including the ferry, I always stayed overnight in April too. Yeah. Actually, we had a really fabulous time last time we went. <laughs> Definitely a perk. Yeah, and then and then sometimes I would drive to visit libraries to help them with a specific project. So I I really liked doing kind of space planning and you know going into a helping a library kind of decide how to reorganize the space that they already have, come up with ideas new decorations, new organization of materials, new furniture type of thing, but also then helping them kind of figure out how to rearrange their collections and make sure that their collections are more diverse and inclusive. And we're doing all that now, but we're doing it all on Zoom. Right. So I sit in my, my bedroom with my cat on my toes <laughs> and, and do it all virtually. But I, I, you know, I am really looking forward to being able to do that in person again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same. Yeah, so like you, I one of the things I love about my job is that every day is different. And that's actually something I just liked about being a librarian too. Mm -hmm. When I worked in a public library, I did really feel like every day was different. Um, I didn't feel like I had, you know, that stereotypical office job where you're doing the same thing all the time. 
and new stuff would always come up and that's that's the same for us now so yeah before COVID it was you know I would I would explain it to people like well I'm on the road a couple days so doing the same things you talked about either it could be classes or doing a visit uh, sometimes meetings a couple days in the office so we have an office in Marlboro Mass and one in Northampton and usually Christy and I are in the Marlboro one and then a couple days working from home, which was really nice, especially if you were on the road. Now I realize that's six days. So we're, <laughs> we're just doing an average. I do only work five days a week. But, you know, so, so. <laughs> maybe you were working more than me or yeah, something. No, no. But just sort of, you know, sometimes it might've been like three days at home, which right. I have to say before COVID, I didn't like once I did three days in a row at home and I felt so lonely and like, mm-hmm. you know, like I need to brush my hair. Like this is, I don't want to do this again. So that was definitely an adjustment um, <laughs> when that moved to work from home all the time, but it's also hard to be on the road many days, especially is, in yeah. a row. So I think that's why when we talk about the remote work, that's, that's when it was really important to me so like if you had done like a really long drive the day before um I tried to make sure I was working from home the next day and you know not to go off too topic uh, not to go off topic too much (laughs) um you know I get a lot done at home because there's fewer Mm -hmm. distractions so usually um yeah usually not anymore (laughs) it's different when you do it all the time I like that schedule and that worked out really well and like Christy this some of the same tasks right so like going to libraries to talk about particular projects or also just sometimes to welcome people to the yes. state so we might get or to the to the field so we yeah. might do librarians that need to know about the support systems that they have in the state and what we can do for them mm-hmm. and again like you said it's even with COVID and the lockdown we're still able to do that but it is really nice to do it in person. And it's so great to see these different libraries because then that gives us ideas for helping other people Yes, um, to sort of say like, oh, you have a small space. Well, I've seen this really amazing small space, you know, here and you can go visit. That's great. Just again, to get those ideas and make those connections. Yeah. I really miss going in and being able to take pictures of things. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I take a ton of photos anytime I visit a library, even if I'm not doing it for this job. If I happen to be driving somewhere like, oh, I'm going to stop at a library and take pictures. And then I use that and say, oh, I can show you what this other space did. Or, um, you know, like I saw this really amazing display unit and I'll show it to picture, pictures of that. And I also love taking pictures of signage. I was just going to say signs. (laughs) (laughs) Good signs, signs. snarky signs successful ones. I mean, going back, especially going back to our, our first episode, like about people reading signs and like, sometimes I take pictures of them. Like, what's the story behind this? Like there was once a, um, a library I visited that had like a dumbwaiter from a mezzanine Mm -hmm. level. And they had a sign on it that on it, that was a skull and crossbones. I'm like, but who died? Or right. what happened? Like, Wait, why? Is the dumbwaiter poisonous? Right? <laughs> exactly. Don't eat in the dumbwaiter. That's so, really funny. I, I I look forward to being able to to do see all of that. I mean, actually, just um, recently, one of the libraries that we follow on Instagram posted pictures of their new furniture, and I'm super oh. excited to be able to go and see it in person. Right. And um, right. I know that we've sounds had, like, um, silly, but furniture is exciting. No. Well, we've had some libraries that have finished their building projects during the lockdown. And I'm I'm really excited to go see them um, because I haven't been able to so far. Yeah. I also wanted to mention some of the other things we do, you know, especially Christy and I, we work together a lot on topics, especially for youth and school librarians. And so we plan the Teen Summit. That's an annual event. And actually it's coming up soon. <gasps> and you're all date. invited. You you're first. Yeah. Yes. All, you're all invited no matter where you are uh, because it is going to be virtual and it is free and it will be October 8th, 2021. So save the date. We will be sending out more info soon, but I will put info in the show notes know. for those yeah. of you not on our email lists. Right. Yeah. That's an event where it's for any library worker that works with teens in any capacity, but we do get a lot of school and public librarians and it, you know, usually was in person and it's a one day, uh, sort of like a symposium 
where, or summit, I suppose you could say, um, where we'll usually have a keynote speaker. That's an author. Like I said earlier, Melinda Lowe was our keynote, I think in 2019. And, and then we have practicing librarians um, talking about the programs and services they do. And um, we run the statewide summer program together. So there's just like a bunch of things, you know, besides sort of the consulting or the training, we also work on some other projects, some that continue on and on, or some that might be just like a, a one-time thing. We really try to make it so that it's stuff that people have told us that they want to do, like, for instance, Project Ready, if you want to talk about that, Christy, because that really came out of what people were asking for sure. in our state. Yeah, so Project Ready is a curriculum that's from the um, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and based on research that professors there did with uh, school libraries on how to support youth of color in library spaces. And so um, it's called uh, Ready is an acronym for Reimagining Equity and Inclusion for Diverse Youth. I think I got it right. I'm not actually looking at it. <laughs> I didn't take notes. But I, I it, put you on the spot. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> it, it is a, um, a multi-month endeavor, really, because um, each section has modules um, of learning on um, self-paced learning that is recommended that you do it with a cohort. And so that's what we've done here in Massachusetts. We've kind of facilitated the creation of cohorts to do Project Ready. And we started it in July, 2020. And those first cohorts are now just, you know, they're finished. They've gone through the whole thing. And the first half is really kind of foundational information on race and racism in the United States, how that impacts library service. And then the second half is, you know, practical applications. Like, how do you change your practice? What can you do about policies? And, and what, what should your collections look like? And if you're in a school pedagogically, I always get that wrong. <laughs> um, if you're in a school, like how, how do your teaching practices change? Should they change? Yeah, so we, we've been supporting that and are going to continue to do it this summer as well. Right, and that's the thing. Like when, when we uh, put together the cohorts last year, we weren't sure what would happen next. Yeah. You know, if anything, that could have been a one-time thing, but because some people missed it the first time around, uh, I mean, it was during COVID, so it was a complicated time to start something new, but yeah, for those people, we're starting up another round. And now we do this podcast too. That's right. Which is super fun. And we need more questions. So That's right. we would love you to email us your questions about libraries or books or, you know, anything that you've heard of on the podcast that you would like to know more about or, you know, yeah, anything. Um, that's why it's called Ask Us Anything. Yeah. You can send it to this pod is overdue at gmail.com. We would love to hear from all of you and get your questions so we can include them in future episodes. So, April, what are you learning about these days? Well, yesterday, I hosted a webinar uh, called Librarianship, COVID-19, and Homelessness, Informing Library Practice with Social Work Perspective. And it was presented by uh, Dr. Rachel Williams and Dr. Lydia Ogden. They are both associate professors at Simmons University. And Dr. Williams is in the library program and Dr. Ogden is in the social work program. And they work together on research that impacts both the field of social work and librarianship. And it was about 90 minutes. That was what we planned for, but we totally ran out of time <laughs> uh, because there's just so much to explore and discuss on this Absolutely. topic. I think especially because COVID did add uh, it added such a huge amount of stress on everyone, you know, all over the world, but especially to vulnerable populations, mm -hmm. like people experiencing homelessness, and then also the people who strive to serve them. So like the library workers and social workers. Um, so the presenters were really fantastic. I had read something from Simmons, probably like in the alumni newsletter about Rachel, who was doing some research 
And I thought, oh, she might make a good <laughs> speaker for us someday. And this fit in with our diversity, equity, inclusion program series that's going on at MLS right now. Um, so I encourage, this was recorded, so I encourage you know anyone who's interested to check out that. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and they talked about defining homelessness and addressing the assumptions people make about people experiencing homelessness. Also the impact of COVID-19, of course, but also social work service models and skills that could help support patrons who are experiencing homelessness and sort of looking at that trauma-informed approach. Mm -hmm. So if that's a new term for you, um, again, you'll definitely want to check out the webinar. And since we did run out of time, uh, one of the things we talked about was doing a part two and talking more about those skills and also supporting uh, yourself. So yes. because you are, so because you are hearing about and dealing with situations that can be very traumatic, you know, can cause burnout and, you know, stress on yourself. Compassion fatigue. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There were a couple of things that really resonated with me and one's actually related to my book choice and not intentionally about pride month, mm -hmm. but um, you know, the impact on the LGBT community, TQ community, especially youth who end up homeless, often because their families have rejected them. The same day that we had this webinar, which was yesterday, June 17th, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Catholic Social Services, a group in Philadelphia, could, could refuse to consider LGBTQ couples as foster parents. And I just felt like, you know, it's just so wrong on so mm -hmm. many levels to be able to that, to be able to do that, but especially considering how many LGBTQ youth need the support system of loving homes. You know, it was like, they're saying you're better off on the streets than with a gay couple. Um, and it's sort I'm sort of oversimplifying it, Yeah. but that's, that's the reaction, the visceral reaction I had as I had just heard, you know, this webinar in the morning or oh, sorry in the afternoon um but it also kind of leads to my other main takeaway and there were many from the webinar but that experiencing homelessness is a system failure rather than a personal failure and it's really you know the research that Rachel and Lydia were talking about it's really not common that people experience homelessness because of like their direct actions or mm -hmm. choices. More often it's because of things like a sudden illness or a job loss, eviction can be very complicated. So it's right. often not just one thing. And right now, many parts of the country have really high housing costs and low wages. So even though you may be working, you may also not be able to afford a safe place to live. And that is a system failure. Yeah. <clears throat> I um I was as a quick aside to that I was noticing uh, some posts in our our town Facebook group about people looking for rentals you know apartments and the rents that they were looking for are way more than I pay for my mortgage plus my condo fee right. and the that kind of speaks to the that the privilege that I have in being able to own a place and pay less right than rent but to be able to get to a space where you can buy a place is mm -hmm. a huge undertaking and so right. yeah the the wage and rent gap is huge and I think we see it a lot here but I think that's happening all yeah. over all yeah over the country and and so yeah that did kind of get me to this thought of like you know another system failure is an agency being allowed to discriminate against certain couples because they're gay and now there could be kids who really need homes right. and they're maybe not getting them. There's not enough foster families. That's right. It's, yeah. It's, that's a big undertaking too. <sighs> um, and so Dr. Ogden, um, who was the presenter in the social work program, pointed out that the assumptions we might make are really about individuals, right? And what they might be mm -hmm. responsible for, but 
the causes of homelessness are about interactions between systems and system failures that an individual then has to deal with and they may not be equipped to. So, you know, my husband and I have often talked about like times in our lives when we were like one paycheck away from losing where we live or, you know, any number of things that could cause homelessness. Mm -hmm. We always knew either individually or when we were together, like, but we have family that we could go to. We have friends that we could Mm -hmm. go to. We have a support system. We know how to navigate some of the other, you know, community support systems. We have the mental capacity to, you know, figure that all out without maybe other added stresses. So, you know, it's really like this very complicated combined thing that a lot of things combine to make it really hard to avoid that situation. So, you know, and none of this was really new to me, this part, but it was more on how it was phrased and presented that struck a chord with me and gives me a way that I can talk about it with other people who might not be there yet, who might still be making the assumptions and really placing this on individuals. I think we just really need to recognize this and come at it with empathy. I mean, it's still a challenge in our library. So even if you do, Mm -hmm. you know, realize this and feel empathetic, there's still issues to deal with. And not just with people who are experiencing homelessness, homelessness, but there's a variety of things that can happen, especially in our public libraries. A lot of people that may be in crisis and are coming for help, the library workers lack support right. and structure, tools, yep. skills, all and education. Exactly, the training. So a lot of the participants in the webinar commented on that, right? So not that they don't want to help, it's just they don't know what to do. And there aren't a lot of resources. So actually at the end of that, because of what our jobs are as a consultant for the state, and there was also someone from our state library agency there, you know, we mentioned that this is something that we can work on, especially for the suburban areas that came up because, you know, this is sort of seen sometimes I think it's a city problem. Right. Yeah. And just smaller towns don't just generally don't have as many right well and I think our assumption of homelessness and the library is somebody living on like literally living on the street Mm -hmm. and then going to the library to use the bathroom right but that's not what it always looks like I mean in the suburbs in Massachusetts there was a a program for a long time where families were housed in hotels Mm -hmm. around the state and my community had three of them and so homelessness here looked like families all in one hotel room right. and then trying to navigate how to get to school, how to get, to, they couldn't get to the library. Mm-hmm. And so if they did get to the library and then how do they get back to return books? So it's it, an outreach in that space looked very mm-hmm. different than you might see in a city, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. It just Right. Might... And, and the presenters did talk about that when they were defining homelessness, you know, people could be living in a hotel they could be living in the car their car they could be living at a friend's house Mm -hmm. they could have jobs all of those things but they are not in a stable yeah in a permanent space with an address Mm -hmm. and actually you know there are so many policies that play into this too Mm -hmm. like getting a library card if you need a library card in order to use the computers but you need an address in order to get a library card right and that's a whole other webinar we could have yeah. is sort of looking again at those policies and maybe eliminating some barriers because yes. I do know some you know for using a computer like at the library I used to work at we had guest cards so mm-hmm. you, you know you did need a library card number to log in it was more for the tracking system mm-hmm. but yeah if you didn't have a card it was sort of no questions asked you could use the guest card we have a long way to go. We do. <laughs> I think in yeah. some other areas of eliminating. I need to go back barriers. and watch the webinar. I, I'm sorry I missed it. Uh, but yeah, I really want to look, to watch that recording. So we will definitely have the link to the recording in our show notes. Yeah, please check it out. And how yeah. about you? So my learning this week is related to all the things, I think a little bit, but it's, it came from a project that our coworker Kelly and I are working on that I won't go into because it's huge and deep and um, complicated. (laughs) But as part of this, I was reading a chapter of a book 
and I don't remember what the book title is, but I can get it and I'll have it in the show notes. But the chapter is called Moving Toward Transformative Librarianship, Naming and Identifying Epistemic Supremacy. And it was written by Myrna Morales and Stacey Williams. And it's a big mouthful of a title. The basis of it is that epistemology is the study of knowledge. So, and this is a direct quote, they say for librarians, epistemology is the business of information gathering that helps construct individual and shared knowledge. So basically it's what librarians do. Epistemic supremacy is, their quote also, defined as social systems, infrastructures, and knowledge pathways that facilitate and uphold the conditions for tyranny and fascism by destroying any system of knowledge, which is epistemicide, not controlled by the ruling class as a means of facilitating racial monopoly capitalism. Again, very academic definition, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the um, layperson version is history is told by the winners, hmm. right? So what happens to that knowledge that existed that we don't have anymore, that gets lost, that's epistemic supremacy, that epistemicide. The chapter is just so amazing. I had to open on my my desktop for the longest time because I keep going back to it and reading sections and and taking notes. There's a whole section on, on J. Edgar Hoover and his background in libraries and what he did using his library knowledge to create systems of information gathering in order to stop um, groups Mm -hmm. from being able to share information, um, which kind of ties into the whole um, uh, McCarthyism a little bit too, because Mm -hmm. of all that the tracking about communism and any group that was considered radical. Tying this back to, you know, things that we've talked about here already is um, I thought about what you mentioned in um, from Braiding Sweetgrass about the three sisters mm-hmm. and how the colonists d- deciding that the, the method of growing food with the three sisters together was backwards and not okay. Right. And that was wrong in preference of the so-called quote unquote ordered planting system that the colonists had and losing that knowledge of how those three plants work together. That's epistemic supremacy and epistemicide because that's knowledge that's information that Mm. that has been kind of pushed down because of this other knowledge that is seen as better also like another one too is with regard to like um how we talk about things and how we name and classify is uh the classification system just the dewey decimal system in in general is a problem but for example native american creation stories are classed in 398.2. And for those of you who don't speak Dewey, that's folk and fairy tales. So that means that, you know, a Native American creation story can be next to Cinderella. And there that gives an equivalency between religion, Native American creation story, and a fairy tale, a story told to kids. Right. I was just going to say, like, how would people feel if Cinderella was with religious right in the religious section of your library like if if all of a sudden like they started putting the bible in the fairy tale section Mm -hmm. you know we we had an instance of somebody um of a a presenter one time talking about the greatest fantasy story she had ever read was the bible and people were really angry about that and she wasn't meaning to upset people no i think it was it was about you know, when you look at the stories, they are right. fantastical, right? Yes. Some of these stories, right. no matter how you interpret them as real or not real, it's, you know, to live right. inside a whale. And, well, actually, I shouldn't even say that because did you hear about the guy? Yes, I did. <laughs> that got swallowed <laughs> by a humpback whale and then it spit him out. So maybe but, I should just stop so talking. So what, what do we decimal, you know, like that classification of like, you know, the you know, raven stories in 398.2 is basically the equivalent of saying that the Bible is a fantasy tale. And so if you are, you know, a religious person, Christian person, and you feel like that's a problem, then, then let's reconsider how Mm -hmm. we're classifying things that, you know, they're not because of epistemic supremacy, though, our culture has raised up certain religious systems as religion, you know, as like valuable 
and others as stories. You know, there, there are so many examples in librarianship. Oh, and actually one more, because I, I made this note, um, which is really relevant today. Um, so we are recording this right around Juneteenth, which for the first time ever in Massachusetts is a state holiday and was just voted to become a federal holiday. Yeah, um, I saw that. That's yes. Great. And it's the year 2021, 156 <laughs> years after yeah. the event that um, the holiday celebrates. And it's relevant to the concept of epistemic supremacy in that the history and the importance of that event just hasn't been talked about, right? right? How many kids have gone through, you know, K through 12 edu- public education and not ever heard of that day? Me until a couple years yes. ago. Yes. Well, I mean, even my my kids this year, their their schools did talk about it, but I, you know, was telling them about it and, and they were like, but how did we not know that before? And it's not that it wasn't known. It just wasn't shared and given status. And that is, you know, epistemic supremacy. So there are so many examples. This article is amazing. I mean, I could really go on for a very long time about it. Um, And it really just kind of gets to the the idea that information is not neutral. You know, we as librarians like to think, we're like, we're giving information and it's here. And the information is true. It's fact. But how information gets published, how information gets categorized and what information gets purchased or, or shared or talked about. That's not neutral. It's all part. We all have biases and those come into play when we're doing our jobs as librarians or in publishers or educators, Mm -hmm. it's not neutral. Right. Well, right. And another kind of neutrality argument is like, oh, we have to show all the different sides. But if you don't know about that (laughs) information, you're not going to show it, right? So if you had never heard of Juneteenth, you're not going to be showcasing that. You're going to showcase the things you do know about. And because of this, you're going to show, you know, sort of the, like you said, the winner's version. Exactly. Yeah. Is that article um, available? It is. Yes, it actually is um, available. It's from um, the book is from MIT Press. The book. Oh, here it is. The book is called Knowledge Justice, Disrupting Library and Information Studies Through Critical Race Theory, edited by Sophia Lung and um, Jorge Lopez McKnight. And it is available to from MIT Press Direct. Um, And so this particular chapter is available um, to view online. And I'll include the link in our show notes. Awesome. I definitely want to look at that. Well, how about what you're loving these days? So many, I had a hard time. You always say that. I do, I do, because (laughs) I just like, I get super passionate about things and like, yeah, you just get, and almost a little like, annoyingly passionate about things sometimes <laughs> I think but um so I decided this week that I was going to talk about stickers Ooh, yeah so I love stickers too I've always loved stickers and I you know I had a sticker book and a sticker Me collection too. and even you know we even have like this bag of stickers that for my kids and I use I have stickers I have a calendar on my wall I'm pointing to that nobody can see um where I give myself stickers when I do my Pilates workout even more so recently, I've gotten very into vinyl stickers that I can put on water bottles and my, mm-hmm. you know, things, my things. And I've been very into snarky stickers and ones that send messages. And I've, I've had one on my, my laptop for a very long time that from far away looks just like it says, get rid of racism. And when you get close, it says you can't get rid of racism by just being nice. That's right. I have that one too. But I've recently started looking for other stickers and especially small creators. And so right, the one I have in my hand right now is from a, um, a queer owned company um, called Ash and Chess, a store. And I think they're in the South somewhere. Um, but the sticker says gender is a social construct. I went in the other day and just bought a bunch of stickers from them. I also have, um, which I actually did post, I think on, um, on our Instagram, um, they also made everybody is a good body. Oh yes. I saw which that. I bought after reading starfish, which I talked about in our last episode. And, um, my water bottle also has the, the one that started it all is, um, ask me about my tragic backstory, which every time I looked at, <laughs> I would giggle because I bought it when, after I had spinal surgery. And so it just made me happy. Um, and then I also have, um, 
Holy Mother Forking Shirt Balls, which is a quote from oh, uh, The Good Place. Yeah. And then I have one in Spanish, um, that recibí la vacuna para mi futuro. Um, so I received my vaccine for the future, for my future that I got when I got my second COVID nice. vaccine shot. So I just have been collecting them. I, I buy bunches at a time and sometimes I send them to people just to make them happy, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I bought a bunch for my daughter and I bought her one that says a night, um, night owl that she put on her water bottle. And I've just been really having fun with them. Um, You'll have to put links to your favorite places to find them. Yes. Yeah. 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 There's, um, there are a couple different places that I've, I've purchased stickers from a few, um, graphic novel creators have Mm -hmm. great, uh, one is a Toonie Balloonie, which, which is the, uh, Instagram account of, I can't remember right now. And I'm really sorry. I have not had enough caffeine today. (laughs) I was just going to put it in the editing post. I'm not as good about that. (laughs) Well, it always sounds so funny too, because it's like yes. really clear that it's like later. <laughs> Alex Groudens, um, Toonie Balloonie. Uh, she, her, she's a, a cartoonist who's done a bunch of uh, graphic novels that I've liked. Um, and she does a bunch of stickers and she's in Rhode Island actually. And so it was fun to get like a little envelope of stickers from her. I actually think she's the one who did ask me about my tragic backstory. Yeah. yeah I love stickers too. I have, um, it's not near me right now to show you, but I have a little bucket that's got a ton of markers in it. And because I would get sent stickers from friends or sometimes you get them like with a product and yeah. something really cool. So I put them on my bucket. Cause like you said, the vinyl ones can really stand up to that and they look really good. I have an RBG sticker and um, some that friends have made. And then we've mentioned Calliope stationery store before. That's yes. Where I live. They had some book kind of library related stickers that I got like a ton of. So also to send to people who have like done favors for us and yeah, they're just fun. I think they really help brighten up everything around you. And I, I do think it's funny that like, as a kid, like you, I loved stickers, had all the sticker collections, would get excited about, you know, scratch and sniff stickers and puffy stickers and glitter stickers. But then there was like this big lull where, where stickers weren't, you know, as popular or as cool. I never had a low. Yeah. No, no, no <laughs> I, I didn't. Like I had a low. My kid's but sticker it... collection was my, started with my stickers that I had in college and I put on, on envelopes when I mailed people letters and stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I never I took a break. Didn't have, maybe I just didn't have access to like stickers that appealed to me at a certain yeah. age, but yeah, now that I'm finding, like you said, like I like the snarky ones or like interesting graphic artwork or or whatever and what are well, you loving well I was just going to add one more thing that was interesting oh, yeah. that you mentioned the the company that is the the one in the south that's like a queer owned is that right yes I, I can it, find out where yeah well are. it's kind of again like we didn't plan any of this because June is pride month but no um there's definitely a thread through our <laughs> through our episode today I'm loving hacks it's a tv show on I thought you said hats, <laughs> like something you put on your head. No, I love hats. No, I hacks. Like okay. you're a hack comedian because this is, uh, like I said, a half hour series on HBO. It just came out this spring. Have you heard of it? No, no, oh. I haven't at all. Okay. I don't have HBO. Yeah, well, that's kind of a problem with my my love right now, but I'll get to that. But I saw a trailer and mm-hmm. I just was like, I'm going to love that show. So <laughs> I just started watching it and then finished it like in less than a week. I would watch, I would watch it in the mornings before work. That's how good it is. Uh, Jean Smart, if you're, Ooh, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you're a fan of designing women, which I was back in the, the 80s, Jean Smart plays a like really famous comedian uh, named Deborah Vance. And she has this like regular show in Las Vegas, but it's about to end because she's sort of being seen as too old, you know, and mm. not fresh enough. And after kind of a rough start with each other, uh, she agrees to work with this young writer named Ava. And she's played by Hannah Einbender, who is so good in this. Uh, they both are amazing. Like just can't even believe how great they are. But Hannah Einbender, she's really funny. So you can look up her stand-up on YouTube. She, I think she was just like the perfect fit for this. So like on the surface, it's sort of like, oh, this is just like one of those, like it's a clash between generations, you know, and 
you know, boomer and millennial or whatever. But what makes it so great is that it's like so much more. There's a, mm-hmm. a lot of depth and heart to it. And through Ava's eyes, you learn about the struggles that Deborah had to get to this like status of being a comedy legend. Uh, you know, she had to deal with sexual harassment and just being dismissed because she's a woman. Yeah. And you can see like the inspirations of like Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller. And so Eva, she does sort of uh, embody this like entitled millennial, but as she points out, she's actually Gen Z. (laughs) (laughs) But you also start to see her struggles too. Like she has not you know, had this easy life. She's bisexual. She has some family issues and eventually they do start to bond and they become a really great team. You know, there's sort of like a bickering <laughs> misunderstood team, but they're still a team and they really are working hard together to make Deborah's show more current. And part mm-hmm. of that is having her, I don't want to give too much away, but having her like be more real and be more raw mm-hmm. and I do think like audiences would connect with that so it's really funny oh, did I mention it was funny I think. yeah <laughs> I kind of assume so with uh, the like right com- the premise, comedy right? part yeah or at least I um, hope so <laughs> but like I said it's also like has depth to it and it's really powerful especially exploring the issues that women face in comedy and show business and I don't know if this will do it but I hope it puts to rest this whole like women aren't funny thing because I think that's just so insanely ridiculous um only men say that yeah it's true uh one of my favorite scenes actually that is really funny is Ava goes to a coffee shop so she's been sort of stuck in Las Vegas working with Deborah and she really hates Las Vegas for a short period she ends up back in LA where she lives and it goes out to this coffee shop and it's just like one of the funniest scenes because she you know, in Las Vegas, she can't get oat milk and she can't get, you know, a matcha latte and all of this stuff. And so like, as she's interacting with the cashier, she's just so excited to like be in LA and like order these things. And at one point, you know, she's gets charged for the drink and it's like $11. (laughs) Yeah. She just, she's just like, Oh my God, like that is ridiculously expensive and I love it (laughs) you know she's been eating at like you know buffets and all of this and so she's just so excited and I really just love these characters and uh yeah I did a little research because I finished the whole thing I don't like to research a tv show if I haven't finished it because it might be spoilers but the executive producer is Michael Shore oh my gosh yes H-U-R, Michael Shore. Um, and he did Parks and Rec and, and Good The Good Place, Place mm-hmm. and Brooklyn Nine. So it's funny when you, yeah, when you mentioned that sticker. Yeah, all of those are some of my favorite shows. Um, in particular, Parks and Rec and The Good Place also make me cry. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've laughed and cried with those shows and the same with this one. But it was also interesting to find out the main creative team are all women. They actually, all three of them had worked on Broad City, which I haven't seen, Mm, but I know people who love it. Um, And the show is just very like women centric, but it's it's not all white and it's not all cisgender, which is like Mm -hmm. really, you know, fresh and refreshing and, you know, it's it's life now. So it yeah. should be reflected in the show that way. But it also made me think of your book, Dunkle, too, because oh, yeah. it has that, it has the like, not necessarily grief, but pain, mm-hmm. you know, pain with that mix of humor and really this amazing balance. And it just makes it so real because I do think that's, yeah. you know, that's life, right? Well, and one of the things I've always said about jokes and humor is that they're only, things are only funny if there's truth to them. Mm-hmm. And so, and pain is one of those things that the further, even when you're in it, actually, I was going to say the further away you get from it, but even when you're in it, sometimes mm-hmm. there's a lot of humor in it because it's, yeah. it's so real. It's right. Right. Yeah. They are, I think, closely related, but yeah. So about HBO. So <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive. We happen to get it because it like came with our phone package. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. That's how, and, uh, how we have Disney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you don't have HBO and you don't want to pay for it, you could do the free trial. I mean, I would say do the trial just for this, but then you might get 
down the HBO rabbit hole because there are some other great things there. Um, but you can wait for it to come out on DVD and have your library buy it. Is that still <laughs> I think so. I'm not actually sure. That should be our next question. Yeah. Someone tell us. <laughs> someone tell us. Um, so, or borrow a friend's login or something, but mm-hmm. it's only 10 episodes. They are half hour episodes. I oh, have that's a, feeling, a single day. I yeah. Just... I have a feeling there will be a season two, you know, it ends in an interesting way. It's not like a total cliffhanger, but yeah, there's room for more. Mm-hmm. My one disappointment was that you don't get to see this full, whatever, what Ava and um, Deborah have been working on. You don't get to see like the full result of that. And I would love that. Like, I think that would that be would an interesting be, kind of like, yeah, side thing, but you, you know, hear, like a yeah. comedy special that's related. Right. To right. You. Yeah. As they work on it though, you, you get the idea yeah. of what they're doing. So yeah, check it out. Thanks. And before we go, we just want to remind you all that uh, you can find us in a number of different places. If you want our show notes, um, it is tinyurl.com slash this pod. We're on Instagram. This pod is overdue. We would love to have you follow us. We should post pictures of what we're reading, plus other pictures. I'll, I'll post some pictures of stickers and tag the creators there so you can find them. And uh, we just love interacting with all of you because you're all over the world. That's I know it's so exciting <laughs> um and so if you're you're from outside of Massachusetts or outside of the United States we'd love to hear from you specifically too and say how did you hear about us we just love that you're out there so thank you for listening and we look forward to talking to you next time yes thank you for listening bye everyone Thanks for listening to This Podcast is Overdue with Christy and April. Bye, everyone. Happy reading. Our podcast music was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alidu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. I'm not a soft person. I mean, I am a soft person, but I'm not a (laughs) quiet person.